Well, my name is Scott. I want to invite you to take uh, your uh, Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, we'll begin reading Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 15 in just a moment. But while you're turning there, I want you to think about why we have Gospels. Why would Matthew or Mark or Luke or John write about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that requires some kind of written explanation? I think it's likely that stories about Jesus were being passed down. Everyone really, when he was here, was talking about him. Afterwards, they continued to pass on those stories. And the job of someone who writes a gospel is to make sure that you get Jesus right. I think it's easy to get Jesus wrong. And if we were to get Jesus wrong, you realize that the stakes would be pretty high because if you get Jesus wrong and he's not who he really is, at least you don't believe him for who he really is, then you end up with a Savior who really does you little good. If you understand Jesus to be a moral teacher, and that's all, you look up to Him for advice, but you'll be free to take it or leave it as you see fit. Or if you understand Him to be a king, maybe even one militant, powerful, and ruthless, you end up with some kind of religious nationalism or you end up with the Crusades where Jesus is seen as a warrior and a conqueror and not a savior. Or if you go in classical theological terms and you see uh, Jesus as 100% God but maybe less than 100% human, you would understand him to be worthy of worship but idealized in a way that keeps him distant and remote. Or if you see him maybe as 100% man, but less than God, you might be inclined to identify with him, but you'd be less inclined to fear him. And his ability to save you will certainly be compromised. And so I think if you're writing the story of Jesus, you want to introduce him in a way that people will understand him for who he is. It's your job to get Jesus right and then to help other people get Jesus right. You might think, that's not that big a deal. Pretty much everyone kind of figures Jesus out. Well, I want to tell you, they don't just about all the time figure Jesus out. Because everyone is bound to craft Jesus into the person they want him to be. Everyone is inclined to create a Jesus and shape him, really, in their own image. If you just think about how this plays out in public life, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address admits that both the North and the South read from the same Bible and prayed to the same God. Both claimed Jesus was on their side. And in his words, both couldn't be right. 
And even now, Republicans and Democrats alike claim Jesus to favor their party and their platform. They enlist him in their partisan service, much like Simon the Zealot wanted Jesus to stand up against Rome, and Matthew drew his salary from Rome, and so both couldn't be right. So how you understand Jesus is no trivial matter. Unfortunately, the same thing is true in religious contexts. People treat Jesus as though he had some kind of a wax nose when it comes to church as well. I mean, who would want to be a Christian and believe that Jesus was closer to someone else than to them? Do the Catholics or the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Quakers have a better read on Jesus than anyone else? All would claim Jesus is in their corner. And all would claim that, they, that Jesus is closer to their way of looking at the world than he is to another. We all struggle to get Jesus right. And so that's, I think, why Matthew wrote his gospel and why he wrote it the way he did and why he inserted this uh, quotation that we're going to read today in there so that we get Jesus right. When we left the book of Matthew last spring, Jesus had just invited all those who were weary and burdened to come to him and take his light yoke and to find rest for their souls. And then we read that that doesn't always work, right? That there were people last, when we looked in chapter 12 last week, Jesus got in trouble for not keeping the Sabbath. Because there were people who were more concerned about being right about the Sabbath than they were about being right about Jesus. And left us with these words in chapter 12, 14, but, Jesus, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Not exactly the, the um, reception that you want Jesus to get when you tell his story anyway. So let's pick up reading there in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now as we've been reading and developing this 
book of Matthew, we've seen that Matthew is very interested in us recognizing that Jesus is the king. But what kind of king is he? What is this king like, and what does this king do? Well, it's important to notice that Jesus does what a king or a Messiah should do, but not in the way that a Messiah, you think a Messiah would do it. Jesus does what you would expect a Messiah to do, but not how you would expect the Messiah to do it. So I want you to see that Jesus both fulfills expectations and destroys them. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from them. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. It appears that in the midst of this conflict and Jesus withdrawing, that that's the occasion that Matthew uses to tell us about Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus had a sense of timing that knew that when he would go public, he would also go to the cross, and so he wanted to wait. He didn't want people prematurely to give out their version of Jesus, but rather to wait until they understood him more before they told people about him. And so what comes in this next section, pulls us out of what we would say is our version of Jesus. I think Matthew didn't have to bring this quotation up. He could have, uh, he could have gone any number of ways. He could have explained why Jesus withdrew or why he told people not to say anything for a number of other reasons, but he wanted us to know who Jesus is. And I think... This healing reminded him of Isaiah, that he healed everyone, meant that he didn't break those who were bruised or quench those who were smoldering. And Jesus' withdrawal from this conflict reminded Matthew of that passage in Isaiah where Jesus would not quarrel. And so Matthew said, now's a good time to tell people about Jesus as the servant of God. And so he introduces this with his normal formula in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now he said those very words several times throughout the book because it's very important to him to build a link to the Bible. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament. Just like, I want you to open your Bibles because I don't want you to take my word for it. Matthew didn't want us to take his word for it either. He said, let's just go back to the Scriptures. This was to fulfill. This happened so that you would know that this Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And then he quotes 
Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So as I mentioned, this comes from Isaiah chapter 42. It's one of what we call, um, what theologians call, the servant songs. There's four different um, songs or poems or odes to this special servant of God in Isaiah. There's one in chapter 42, one in chapter 49, one in chapter 50, and one in chapters 52 and 3. Now, that's probably not that important to you, except that much of what we believe about Jesus is built on those Old Testament songs. That Jesus is the one who fulfills the role of this servant of God. Two things are happening when these songs are being sung in the book of Isaiah. One is that God is at work in the world. Now, nobody thinks this. If you're in Israel at the time, you see the Assyrians come and uh, take away the northern kingdom, and you have uh, wars with Syria and with Egypt and with uh, Babylon, and you're thinking, this is, God's out of here. God's nowhere to be seen. And Isaiah comes on the scene and he says, no, God is at work. And the focus of his work is this servant. In fact, if you pull back a little farther, you see that God has been at work throughout world history, and the pinnacle of this work is the servant mentioned in Isaiah. And so God is at work in the world, and the servant is the one who is doing that work. But also, the other thing happening in Isaiah is that God is wooing Israel back to Himself. He's pleading with them to turn back to Him and turn away from their idols. Sometimes in order to do that, He uses threatening language. Sometimes the language is the language of a spurned lover meant to draw them back to Him. And so the writers of the New Testament are not only aware of this dynamic that that all of us, in Isaiah's time, in Matthew's time, in our time, are prone to look at other things, to look to other things to find our comfort and security, to find our meaning and purpose in life. And those other things, just as certainly as the inanimate idols that that, uh, Isaiah was talking about, all of those things that we look at, too, will simply disappoint us. And so the writers of the New Testament draw on that plea against idolatry and on that special work that the servant does, and they say, Jesus is that one. Come back to Him. Turn away from idols. One of those servant songs is Isaiah 53, which uh, 
I hope that you've heard before. In Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded, uh, excuse me, but upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The New Testament writers read that in Isaiah and said, that's Jesus. And Matthew's doing the same thing now. He quoted that verse in chapter 8, and now he's quoting chapter 42. So who is this servant? If Matthew's going to identify him with Jesus, let's look at him and figure out who, uh, what he is like. If you look there, this servant is chosen by God. He is loved by God. He, God is pleased with him. And he is controlled by God's Spirit. That's remarkable. That whatever this spirit, or whatever this servant is doing, he is so um, pleasing to God that God chooses him and God carefully guards him and God is close to him and he's controlled by God's spirit. That's why even in the beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism, God stated, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So God himself, even in his baptism, identifies Jesus with this servant in Isaiah. We cannot, in fact, it's probably impossible, to overstate the security that Jesus has with the Father. This closeness and the affection that God has for His Son, His servant, is impossible for us to understand or to overstate. But let me say this. Your confidence and affection can be in Jesus because God's confidence and affection are in Jesus. Because of God's relationship to Jesus, you can have a relationship with Jesus. This loving, volitional, delightful, and secure relationship between God the Father and God the Son forms the foundation for your security in trusting Jesus. You can be confident that Jesus is who He says He is because God is confident that he is who he says he is. And he is the one that ties that entire Bible together, this servant of the Lord. He's chosen, pleasing, loving servant of the Lord. What does this servant do then? Look at what it says. He proclaims justice to the nations. 
or to the Gentiles. Nations and Gentiles translate the same word, depends on what version of the Bible or translation of the Bible you're reading. And you need to realize that this servant of the Lord who proclaims justice to the nations is doing the work of God that God has been doing throughout the Bible. Because from the beginning, God was planning to bless the nations. His commission to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. His commission to Noah was the same. His promise to Abraham was to bless all the families in the earth. The purpose of the Exodus was to show his glory among the nations. David's psalms are written so the nations would be glad. One day the exile would be reversed so that all the nations would recognize the glory of the Lord. In other words, this servant who is chosen and beloved by God will bring about the purposes of God throughout history. He will proclaim justice to the nations. Then it says he will not quarrel, he will not cry in the streets. He's not going to demand obedience and submission. He's not coming on a white horse to conquer and destroy. We were talking about this earlier this week. Pastor John said, the revolution will not be televised. Because God is not going to bring about his goals of justice and peace and freedom in the ways that you would expect. Everyone in Jesus' day expected a conquering and warring Messiah who would throw off the rule of Rome. This servant of the Lord, this Jesus, was not going to be like that. He wasn't going to quarrel. He was going to come. You're going to see what he is like, and you are going to have to respond. He will not coerce you. He will not pressure you. He will not bend you to his will. Rather, if you keep looking, he will be unexpectedly or unimaginably gentle. It says he will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out the smoking wick. Think about that. Why would he bring that up? Because this servant of the Lord will be gentle. He will be different than you imagine him. After all, how valuable is a reed? How much is it worth? You can find them in never, near every wetland or pond. If one breaks, 
It's no big deal. You just throw it away and you get another one. You don't care for it and tenderly protect it. Unless you're the servant, I guess. A smoking wick. Really, have you ever gotten one of those candles that just does that? Like, fills the room and then you're um, having to figure out what to do? It was like, that always happens at Christmas time, it seems like. Like the week after Christmas is figuring out what to do with the smoke. A smoking wick is one that doesn't work like it should. Of course, it wasn't probably a candle like we have. It was more an oil lamp, and so it really was just a piece of grass or flax or maybe some kind of cloth that they had in there as a wick, and if it's smoking and not putting off light, you just pull it out and you put another one in. It's not very hard. You just dispense with the, with the thing that's a problem. And that's what he's telling us this servant would not do. Just because you're a problem, just because you have problems, just because you feel bruised, or like your life really isn't getting traction, he will not dispense with you. In fact, you'll find that he's nurturing you and caring for you. Because really, who, who is the bruised reed, right? Right? Some of us are bruised because we still have anxiety or PTSD after COVID. For some, we're bruised because our job is wearing us down. For others of us, our marriage is lonely and we can't tell anyone. For others, our health is in a constant state of crisis. Still others have a family that's falling apart and they're at wit's end. Chances are each of us probably qualify as a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. Because life has a way of bruising us all and snuffing us all out. And every person is going to have to decide what we're going to do when we get bruised. And I think that's why Matthew pulls the quote in. Because are we going to do what they did in Isaiah's day? Are we going to turn away from the God of heaven and turn to idols and hope to find our security and our comfort and our affection and our love from something else? Or are we going to see Jesus for who He is, this servant of the Lord, that will treat this broken person with tenderness and turn toward Him? I want to invite you not to make the mistake that Israel made in Isaiah's day. Not to make the mistake the Pharisees were making in Matthew's day, but rather I want to invite you to turn to Jesus and find Him to be 
the one who deals tenderly with those of us who are hurt. Now, if you're like me, you're pretty, you're pretty good with that offer. Like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that I can come and not be afraid. Thank you that I can come and not worry that I am not perfect enough or good enough or measuring up enough. And if Jesus was just gentle and kind, I'd take him. But see, the, the text isn't over yet. The quotation isn't over yet. Look at what else it says. It says, He will bring justice to victory. He'll bring justice to victory. This Jesus who deals so kindly and so tenderly with those who are bruised will also ensure that justice is done. Just because He's kind doesn't mean that He's unable to accomplish His purpose. In fact, it ensures that He will bring justice to victory. Because He does what a Messiah would do, but He does it in a way that you wouldn't expect the Messiah to do it. I think it's hard for us to get both of those things um, in view. That He is tender and kind and compassionate, and He is powerful and strong and sovereign over the nations. He will bring justice to victory. Your hope for the brokenness and the injustice of this world is this servant of the Lord named Jesus. The same one that you come to personally for the brokenness and the damage in your own life. And then the text says this, in him the nations will hope. The nations will hope. This is amazing. We get so enamored with the Savior who will tenderly care for the bruised reed and the smoldering wick that we forget He's also the King of kings. He's not only gentle with the brokenhearted, He's great among the nations. He not only comforts the hurting, He conquers injustice. He's not only kind and compassionate, He is just. And Matthew wants us to see Jesus for who He is, not for who we would invent Him to be. So Matthew maintains what the Old Testament Scriptures tell us about this servant of the Lord. And he tells us this servant will give the nations reason to hope. Now there's several things you need to, to see because <laughs> you are those nations. 
The hope of the nations doesn't reside in the political outcomes of their elections. It doesn't reside in their Supreme Court. It resides in this servant. This text means that you personally can have hope because there is a gentle Savior who will care for the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. But it also means that you can have eternal hope because He is the God who brings justice to victory and in whom the nations or the Gentiles hope. Now, you are those Gentiles. You are those nations. Your hope is in this servant and you can be made right with God because of this servant, this servant named Jesus. And so whether you're going to despair about the way that inflation is happening or the riots in Iran are happening or whatever it is that makes you worry about the nations, you need to know this servant has both the nations and the bruised reed. And he can care for both. And so I want to just suggest to you, I want to give you that same invitation that Matthew is giving us, that Isaiah was giving the people of Israel, and that is turn. Turn back to Jesus. Turn to this servant who will deal with you so kindly. He can take care of every smoldering wick and every bruised reed. He can bring justice to victory in every situation. He can rule the nations and the nations can have hope in Him. So don't turn to some lesser thing. Don't turn to some idol, to some buddy or some thing that makes promises. Just like Isaiah warned Israel, don't turn to the idols of the nations around you. See, everybody has these same problems. Everyone feels bruised and smoldering. Everyone worries about the world and the nations. Yet people look in many, many places for the answer. Matthew gives us his gospel, his account of Jesus, so that we can make our way through all of those other options and find this servant of the Lord and turn to him. Because after all, he himself gave us the invitation, didn't he? The end of chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And so I want to invite you to come again to Jesus. Come today, come tomorrow, come again and again and again because you'll get bruised again and again and again and you come to Him. You'll watch the news and you'll worry about what's going on in the nations and you need to come again and again and again to Jesus. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need Jesus. We don't need some facsimile or some approximation. But would you help us to be more and more clear about who he is, about what you are doing in the world through him, and Father, most of all, about how we need him ourselves. And so I pray that you would comfort us this morning. I, I, just, I know there are, are people here who would say, I'm the bruised reed, I'm the smoldering wick, I'm the weary and the heavy laden. Oh, Father, would you just enable them, like the song we sang earlier, to give them grace to come to you. Would you seek them out even today? And Father, would you keep all of us from those other things that make promises that they can't fulfill, that we might find our hope in this servant of the Lord named Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.